I'm Nicolene Berger. And I'm Joanna Vosloe. And this is Eret. being recorded <laughs> recording in progress <laughs> hello Nicolene hello Jana <laughs> um so um today we are actually doing a zoom edit call again um and really now we know that this is the way we want to record where we just phone each other and chat and then when we when we hang up the episode is done and no editing will happen afterwards. <laughs> yes, and it's uh, quite exciting because um, we don't know what's going to happen and we don't have a lot of structure for this episode. We both have topics we want to talk about and we're going to see what happens. So follow along on our call. Jana doesn't really know what I want to say. I don't really know what she wants to say. So let's see what happens. Yeah, there's definitely going to be an element of surprise to this conversation. And it is interesting because I do feel a little bit like there's a bit of anxiety with normally we have this idea of like we're going to talk about this topic and then uh, it gives us the safety net of maybe reading a few articles or preparing. But this time, like we we, we are really only showing up with what we know in the moment. Um, yeah. So I think it's actually um that's a new exciting element as well. Although we often anyways just do that because <laughs> we are lazy to research. Um, so in the spirit of Eret, um, I want to ask you, Nicolene, what, what is it that you want to air out today? So today I want to air out the grid in my work. I am feeling called back to the grid, not that it's ever left my practice, but because I want to work with it again and it's shifted in my visual language as an artist over the last four years, five years really, um, I think it'll really be constructive to me to talk it through with you and have you ask your very cool critical questions like you do in my practice anyway. So today is going to really be kind of like a demystifying of the process of developing a concept as an artist with a friend um, and talking through what it means so that I can write and use it in a very clear way. And I, just, I want yeah. to say that I'm literally sitting next to your grid at the moment and um, one of the first ones even there. The eh? first ones it's I bought it at your like um first like student exhibition and it it was um because I mean for some listeners might not know what your paintings look like but this one is full on it's like on this dirty pink background and with green lines it's just a grid um little blocks but the lines are also blurred and and it's next to me and I have another painting of yours in front of me as well that's like a grid with a little bit of landscape in between so it's just like a bit of a meta moment for me to be talking about <laughs> the grid with your grid so cool. with me as well awesome um so Jana what do you want to air out today um I want to air out um some of the theory that I've been reading and working with. Um, it functions on a different kind of grid, I guess you can say, the more <laughs> geographic grid, our coordinates in general. And 
together with that, what it means to be human. So that's a bit of an ambitious topic. <laughs> but um, there's uh, some theorists that I recently um, came across and uh, that I'm like shocked I didn't know of before. And I'm, I'm just like in awe of what I'm reading. So I want to just kind of tell you a bit about that and see if what I say makes sense because I'm not sure I'm like understanding what I'm busy with really. So yeah, that's what I want to hear. Awesome. So I think to keep the structure of the episode kind of uh, a little bit of structure because we don't have any, but Jana and I can really have conversations for five hours like easily for a whole day actually. <laughs> So maybe to keep, keep to an hour, you can, we can kind of start with me and you asking some questions, or maybe I'll, I'll do a little bit of an intro about what it is they want to talk about. And then you can ask critical questions for half an hour, and then we'll go over to your topic. And I'll kind of keep time and say, okay, I've, yeah. I've babbled on for half an hour now. So now it's yeah. your turn. And kind of we can impose this little grid of time nice on, on yeah. and it's actually funny because normally when we meet Nicolene has this thing where she's like let's have a come to Jesus moment and quickly like plan because we know we talk so much so then we literally put a time limit we like okay 30, 30 minutes update me on your personal life okay my turn so yes. <laughs> and uh, I just have to say come to Jesus moment comes from Brené Brown she calls it come to Jesus moment and it's that moment where you check expectations and intentions um so yeah that's also kind of cool that yeah she influences my life and my work a lot as well so so much to the point they come to Jesus. Jesus has been a term that I've like imposed in my life everywhere like if I, me and Tabo want to go out for a date I'm like okay come to Jesus moment what what are we eating what are we doing what is the intention um yeah okay so maybe I'll start talking about the grid are you ready yes Okay, so a bit of background on the grid. I had a painter's block in my third year where I started painting in oil for the first time in second year and my lecturers were really impressed because it was like finding a glove that fits my hand perfectly you know like oil painting was just the medium I understood and from the moment I started working with it I had a sensibility for it so I created these really um, sublime monumental massive paintings of uh, landscapes in a romantic style and really loved painting them and then I did that for a year and a half and then kind of midway through my third year my painting lecturer Kulain said that he wants to challenge me to kind of step away from what comes so naturally because I can always return to it in my career but while I'm at university to try something completely different um, so that this critical space that I am in at that point I can also develop new things and kind of expand my, my, my visual vocabulary. And this was extremely daunting to me because now I just found this thing that was so lovely to work with and I understood it and now I have to do something completely different. So then um, I watched a video, I rediscovered or my dad sent me the digital files of our home videos um, when I was a child and we, me and my other two sisters, we used to fight about the video tapes that had our names on because we kind of, they had these my parents made these home videos of us throughout our entire lives um, up until when I was about 12. But the first, you know, cute phase, the first two years of our lives were like deeply documented and kind of focused on one person. So they made these tapes like Nicoline, Carla and Joanri. And then we would like fight about who, what we can watch. And so um, he digitized, digitized, 
these tapes and sent them to me at the beginning of my fourth year, which was such a cool, I think, auspicious moment in my career because I re I understood how much they formed my memories um, to the point where I watched a movie and then I thought it, it triggered a traumatic memory for me about my sister having a heart operation. And then I told my parents that this memory came back to me and my mom was like, you weren't there for that. You're remembering the video. And that was really interesting to me because I was like, fuck, this has completely uh, replaced my own memory. And the archive, the family archive shot through the eye of my dad and my mom became my memory and I became fascinated with this. So then how to interpret this into a painting practice because now I just wanted to study these videos and I don't want to paint something formative. The challenge is to do something completely out of my comfort zone. So through the process of working with different lecturers, I created a grid, which was a way for me to map the, the visceral effect that the videos had on me. So kind of creating a mnemonic device where I created a database of a scale from one to 10 in terms of emotion. And they also had then different colors and different effects. And all of these were then projected onto the grid. And when I say projected, it's mostly like that I painted the grid and then I painted the, the uh, visual representation of the intensity of emotion on the scale from one to 10 on the grid. So there's essentially then 10 paintings in a series from least intense to most intense. And the scenes in the first 45 minutes of the home video about myself, I then kind of plotted on these grids. Does that make sense, Jana? You've seen yeah. my work. So maybe you can say something about the method of making the grids, like physically what, what you did to make them and also um, the what was the role of color to plot these yes. emotions? Like how, okay. did, how did the emotions how were they imposed onto the grids? Yes, okay, th thank you. So <laughs> the um, the color that I used in the background was the color that I felt the most uncomfortable with because this was also a prompt from Kulain Stradum that he said, if you're in a painter's block, go to the color you feel the most uncomfortable with. And the color I hated the most back then, which is funnily enough now a very uh, trendy color was this dirty pink. And then when I chose the color dirty pink, I also started realizing that most of the home videos had this dirty pink in it. This dirty pink has become a very like, central point of my visual language because my grandparents used to have pink everywhere in their house, both sets of grandparents. Um, in my house, we had a lot of the linen from my grandmother, which was this dirty pink color that she then gave to my mom, which was also in my, my room. So there's a lot of these scenes that have this dirty pink and I really associate it with like, a rawness of vulnerability and an inner child, um, you know, part of me. So to paint this dirty pink first on the canvases was kind of the intention to set of like, I'm connecting to something really deep and vulnerable and I'm making myself uncomfortable by doing this. And then I chose to paint the grids in oil paint, which was of course a very tedious pro process because I had to, I taped, you know, the, the, the grid. Um, and then I would paint one layer of like the horizontal lines and then it had to dry for a few days up to weeks and then I painted the vertical lines and in the process of painting the grid I would meditate on the feeling um, of what I was going to put on top of it of the graph if you want to call it like an emotional graph almost and the emotional graph what I did was I I really tried to tap into if I had to split the intensity of emotion or feeling or 
you know, affect that I was getting from looking at the videos into a one to 10 scale. And they had then like almost absolutely nothing was the first feeling, which was then just the grid, but the grid also kind of changed through the process, which I'll speak about now. And then it was like nostalgia, which is not very strong emotion. It's more like a kind of connection to something that's not really there. And then it went to entertainment and Yana, I'm just seeing that the meeting is counting no, down not. 10 minutes. Um, doesn't happen what to do when you are only two people. Does it still do it doesn't? That? No, I, I just thought like if you if you're only two people, then there's no time limit. I was so I don't know what's gonna happen, but let's see what happens. If it okay, cuts I'm off, then we just join again. Start. We just join yes. again. We just have two separate files. And then we just put them all together at the end. <laughs> anyway, so then, and then it was like entertainment. And then it was like, you know, like joy or like laughing. And then it was, uh, I can't remember the middle emotion, number five. And then it went to one emotion where it's like interactions with my mom, which was quite high on the scale. And then interactions with my dad. And then the last emotion was basically that moment where I look into the camera as a baby and I'm now looking into my eyes through the screen. And that was a very intense feeling for me. And that was number 10. So this kind of inquiry was then exposed at the end of like confronting where you come from and trying to create a connection to that which is no longer really a body memory. It's now a memory of a tape, but I had a connection to it. So, so what, what uh, is it that, sorry, what from that moment of looking into your own eyes, so it's like baby you looking at yes. you, like say a bit more like what is it that made you, un was it uncomfortable or was it just very intense? Like what, what was It was just very intense. It wasn't uncomfortable. It was a good kind of intensity okay. of, uh, of, of understanding that now as a fourth year graduate um, doing this project, I am this cacophony of memory and experience. So the way that I linked this vis visual project, visual outputs to the thesis that I had to write at the end of my fourth year or dissertation, or whatever you call it, um, was by writing about body memory and how can art facilitate instances of body memory and how can archives be processed into something that gives you a visceral um, affect feeling. And that was really what I felt at looking into my eyes and understanding that this body is the same body that is on the video. And that to me is endlessly fascinating, you know, like how I am different every time so then in the first um, term of my fourth year I made a series of 10 right of how I felt and then the next term I would watch the video again and I would interpret the same graph and the same grid but of how I felt then and then again in the third year and again in the fourth year so I, I finished with um, 40 paintings by the end of my fourth year obviously I had a lot of extra work but that was kind of the final and they were also presented in these lines in a space where you read them horizontally as a, a, a like a series one one iteration second iteration but also all the number ones all the number twos all the number threes were all below each other so you could see how the graph and the interpretation of the emotion that i was feeling changed throughout the time and this was kind of like also what i was trying to say about memory and body memory is that 
very small things can adjust the way that we feel about something and how we remember and how the visceral effect of memory on the body, you know, like the smell of aniseed can take you back to a place and you're completely there. But what it is that you remember that's there is not necessarily what actually happened. It's the filter of emotion and memory that then gets changed in the body and is triggered by the sense of smell. So that was kind of the first way that I worked with the grid. Okay. And then, um, I mean, okay, I know, I think like I, I know, like as we've spoken about this um, at length in, your, in this process, we also lived together when you created all of these grids. Yes. Um, um, <laughs> There is some, what's always fascinated me was this, um, I, I just recall you, you saying something about the whole process of critiquing art and like the academic space of art and how it's so subjective and you are kind of um, prompted to really bring in the personal and here you are doing that, it's your most vulnerable childhood videos, but then you are applying this kind of, I want to say like pseudoscientific model mm. of like mm -hmm. an analytic model of the grid mm -hmm. and so is there like what does the grid then represent beyond just this personal because I've heard you say it's like a it was a meditation tool you know like yeah. maybe elaborate a bit about that what does the grid so mean first of all what I also wanted to say was um that when you said now about the pseudoscience, I should have also said that in, in order for me to kind of step completely away from what I was used to painting and to do the study, I made it a study. So my studio, I covered with white and I wore a lab coat um, when I looked at the videos and I like made graphs where I used gridded paper to like kind of color these. And that's where the grid kind of also started coming in. The first grids were also just these, like if, if a grid had like 45 blocks and then um, I would color them in grain, grade, what a gradient first, you know, mm -hmm. like with a pencil, I would from the scale from one to 10 have a more intense coloring. So there was like really like data collection that happened in the beginning. So it was a, a pseudoscientific study completely in that sense, the way that I approached it. The grid made it possible for me to look at this really intense personal subject and study it from a kind of scientific objective perspective so the grid mediated the pink uncomfortability with the actual graph of what it is that I was trying to feel and or what I was feeling and then try to depict so it, it removed me because in my third year I did work with these I, I worked with the initial memory of my sister having a heart operation and it was an intense 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 brief and workshop it was really hard for me to work with it so directly so I knew that this fascination that I had with the videos I had to kind of mediate and the grid became the mediation of that and then in the second way I, I don't know if I can move on to that now but in Korea I use the grid as well so now I kind of want to move on to how the grid changed yeah is that okay okay so yeah, then I, sorry, maybe just one thought yes. that I had is like yes um when I maybe a body memory that came up for me while you were talking is like when I grew up, my grandmother had these Piet Mondrian curtains, you know, the, yes. the classic yes. blue and white and yellow grid. And I've actually, like, I now remember somewhere reading that for him, the grid was also, he also didn't always have the grid in his artworks. And it was also this mediation again between the spiritual realm and the, like, uh, physical 
realm and reason. So it's, it's interesting also, like I'm just thinking even more broadly in art, there's always been, there's a lot of examples of the grid featuring. Um, yes. So it's actually quite fascinating to me to like consider yeah. how your artwork is like part of that was a bigger body of of grid okay. <laughs> work um but okay maybe we can go to how how yeah. it then developed when you you so after your honors year you graduated and then you decided to move to Korea and then yes but you weren't yes. officially in an art capacity at first you were uh, yes. an English teacher an English teacher and then I couldn't not paint so I started painting in my shower and then I started going to this art house film space that's a lot like pulp in Stellenbosch and then um, there's a gallery at the top floor where you buy your tickets so I started writing in my diary there started getting to know the staff hanging out there it kind of became a place where I went on my weekends to kind of chill in this really cool art village and then once the one art um, the one art assistant told me that's the curator she's sitting over there go talk to her she'll like your work and then I was like okay cool and then I went to her and I was like is it possible for me to exhibit my paintings in your gallery at the end of this year where I'm teaching here and she's like well actually we're opening for an artist residency at the moment the deadline is Monday if you send me your website by Monday then you'll I'll consider your work and then I just quickly designed a website over a weekend because I didn't have one and then I got accepted and because I was there already they normally pay your plane tickets, but because I already done that, she said instead of a three-month residency, they can give me the space for the rest of the time I was there. So in it, I ended up having a 10-month residency oh. in a studio, like three times the size of my flat. Didn't have to paint in the shower anymore. They gave me some money to, to do an exhibition and to do more paintings. And then, and then for the first time, I now had the freedom to choose what I wanted to paint. So now I wanted to return to the natural stuff that I like to paint these very layered and emotional landscapes which weren't so different in hindsight from the graphs on the grids because they also kind of became these abstracted landscapes but now I could go back to the layered sublime landscapes but I was so we made merch by accident we were brainstorming merch ideas for Eret Podcast and realized we already had merch. Margot Loebscher makes posts for our Instagram by listening to our episodes and translating it visually to represent the ideas and concepts that were aired out on a podcast. We realized that these artworks are so beautiful, we would hang them on our own walls. So then we went from posts to prints. Now our prints can also hang on your walls or you can even gift them to a friend. There are a limited edition of 10 prints each, so they are very special, and we will be creating different prints as the time goes by. They're hand-signed, and you can find them on a strange shop called Casual Sex that supports South African artists. And this is, by the way, a great way to support Erid Podcast. Be sure to check out our newsletter for the latest print offerings. So before we were really interrupted by Zoom wanting us to pay for a plan, um, I was saying I wanted to go back to the landscapes that I painted in third year and second year, but I was still fascinated by the grid. And just to touch on what you said about the fascination about the grid, I want to read a short piece that Azul Kutsia sent me um, because she also knows my work with the grid. And it's an introduction to the article in The New Yorker about power and pleasure of the grid. And it says, 
Yeah, the grid has a matter of fact magic, as mundane as it is marvelous. From sidewalks to spreadsheets to after hours skyscrapers projecting geometric light against the night sky, the grid creates both other, I'm sorry, both order and expanse. And then it goes on to say beautiful things about the grid, but that first sentence really struck me because this is what I then felt like I had before painting the grid always exhibited my work in a grid like the grid was I'm fascinated by it and it's not a unique thing you know and then this craze didn't leave me so now I could in Korea do what I wanted in terms of painting and I started painting these landscapes and felt myself being extremely critical towards them because I didn't have the feedback from varsity and I was feeling a lot of this tension between the logic of art, the intuition of art, the, the, the passion of art and the profession of art, you know, the academic system of feedback and the, you know, kind of organic way of how ideas form. So what I then did was to use the emotive landscape, which was more of physical landscape with trees and stuff, but this layered emotive landscapes as a way to depict the organic nature of art. And then the grid became the structure the profession, which was the inner critic. So whenever I started feeling overcritical towards the painting that I was painting, I would immediately stop the process and paint a grid over it. Now, painting the grid wasn't as simple because I painted oil painting. So it meant that the layer had to dry until I could put the tape on. The, the first layer of grid had to dry before I could put the second one on. And then I could decide to continue over the grid or not. And then the grid really became this meditation of trusting and considering the painting process. So the grid became a little meta process for me to impose on my practice when I got stuck. And then it became all kind of interesting things. It became, you know, I, I would <laughs> not know what <laughs> I would not know what to paint. And then I would first paint the grid or I would really love a painting and then get stuck towards the end or do something that I felt like, oh, now I screwed it up and then I would paint the grid. So the grid kind of became this meditative aspect of my work and it's changed. Um, and it, and it, was, it was also exposing this tension between structure um, and you know, organic, the art and the profession, which I wanted to consider going into making art my profession now. So in the beginning, you first painted the grid and then painted, you know, fill in, filled in the blanks, if I can say it like that. And then afterwards, you, the grid was imposed over what you painted first. So it's interesting how, it, is that, is that correct? Yes, that is how the process <laughs> started. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm a bit sick. <laughs> a bit low-key dying over here. Awesome. Um, um, yeah, so it, that's how it started. But then because I used it as a meditative tool, it changed. So sometimes I would scratch the grid into a painting because I didn't like it as much. And other times I would like paint, I, I would stick thin strips under a painting and know that at some point I'm going to take the strips off and then the grid will be revealed. So it'll kind of create, you know, like a 3D grid into the painting. And then the moment of deciding when to remove the tape over which I painted these landscapes that were oftentimes up to 30, 40 layers of thin washes to create the landscape. And then I had to decide to then 
take it off so it was a releasing of control it was a scratching over perfectionism it was a you know it was kind of a rejection of the overcritical part of my brain and what was interesting is parallel to this process I started working with a very intuitive model and and healed my creativity and my connection to my creative because of the grid, you know, because I had to sit with the uncomfortable emotions of perfectionism and over critique and everything. So now, of course, there's a lot that you can read into these paintings, which the series was called Painted Mantras, because while I painted the grid, I would connect a mantra in that time because it took so much and I would sit with the mantra while creating this very structured, very meditative aspect element. And then the painting would be named that mantra. Um, so. <coughs> um. Yeah, <laughs> um, because of our time limit, I'm going to start um, prompting you <laughs> to to maybe say, so with this in mind, with how the grid developed, like, like I think you've really sketched well almost yeah. how it developed chronologi chronologically throughout your career. What are you hoping for the grid to do for you now? Like, why are you considering a return to the grid? And when so, did you leave? So the grid kind of left when I came back to South Africa and now I had, oh, I just wanted to say that technical note, Jana, if you feel like you want to cough, maybe mute the Zoom yeah. on your side. Good idea. <laughs> just for listener, you know, like well, <laughs> experience. Know. I'm going to do that going forward. Okay, so then... Um, then I came back to South Africa and I felt a little bit fatigued by it because I was uncertain if it was going to still be sellable um, and wanted to do something else and wanted to push my painting to become a little bit more commercial. So during COVID, I made a very deliberate move towards more commercial paintings and the grid to me always kind of functioned in an academic space or in a space where I'd already received funding. So I didn't have to worry about how it sold. Um, and I wanted to see if I can work more in acrylic paint and you know yeah work faster where the grid really slowed down my process and then after I kind of explored that and felt very satisfied with how I could adjust my painting practice and I saw that it was possible for me to do I was like well I still really love painting the grid and then it returned in the latest series that I did um, in the fall collection of this year where I worked with the idea of breadcrumbs, where the practice of my art became the way that I practice art and the understanding of the creative process became the subject of my art. So I worked with the seasonality of the creative process and how you go through different seasons. And in the fall season, I work with this concept called breadcrumbs, which is basically clues you leave yourself um, to return to when the next kind of energizing wave of your creativity starts and I had a lot of these grids left a lot of them sold um, after varsity but I had some left that were really abstract and I loved them and then I thought okay well now I'm going to use them as breadcrumbs and make new paintings over them and then the, the audience that follow me now was like ah what is this grid where does it come from and then the audience that knew me from the past was like, oh my God, I think you also said it at the last exhibition I had, like, I love seeing the grid return. I remember this painting from what it looked like before you painted on it, you know, this new iteration. And then also I'm working with uh, the theme of white Afrikaans femininity and my performance art again. And I'm trying to see how I can bring the visual language of my performance art closer to what I do as a painter 
not so that they read, you know, like exactly the same thing, but just so that my artist identity is clear. And then I got an open call for, I applied for a residency at Bodhikaya. I don't know if I've gotten it yet. I'll hear at the end of the month. And they wanted you to engage with the relationship with nature. So now thinking about this white Africana femininity and the project that I'm doing around the folk smoother identity, I wondered how the grid could feature into this work to, yeah, to, to say something about what it is that I'm trying to expose around the, that concept. And then I thought about this geographical thing, which kind of links our topics. And maybe after we're, I've spoken about this section, we can go over into your understanding of the, the geographics and what you want to talk about today. But I, I thought about land and, and cutting up land and, you know, the kind of length and Breitelina, I don't know what you call that, but on a map, you know. Yeah, the, yeah. Long, longitudinal and absolutely. Yes. Something like that. But anyway, so it's the lines on a map. And I, and I thought about the colonial project of cutting up land to create division and then to create war around those lines. And I also thought about the policing of, of bodies within the Afrikaner community and how specifically women are being policed into kind of having this criteria, almost like ticking the boxes for you to be like a quote unquote good woman. And um, yeah, so now... The grid is kind of moving more towards a political statement, I suppose. And this is where I'm still a little bit unclear. I'm sitting and looking at a dress that I made out of doilies. And interestingly enough, one of the doilies has a lot of like blocks in. So the grid is coming through in that way as well, where I'm working a lot with doilies and materials. I'm also stitching a lot and I'm specifically using a netted grid to stitch through. And then I'm also working with a lot of recycled materials. So all that pink material that I spoke of that came from, that was in my grandmother's house, they moved a few years ago from the farm. And then she basically gave me like what I call my trousseaucus, which is this, the trousseau is basically all the stuff, the crap that she didn't want as a creative person she gave to me. And I see that as my trousseau. So now I'm cutting up all of these uh, materials, which is also largely a body of pink, pink material and working them and sewing and and embroidering and also like more um you know like using the grid of um what do you call those those little bags that you get uh fruit in you know i'm trying to to link the materials that she gave me to a kind of domestic way of working which is the stitching and the sewing also to the the consciousness of the earth you know there's a lot going on actually um, in terms of using recycling material, I'm not trying not to buy any new materials. I haven't bought new materials actually in two years in my practice. So I'm using what I have and the grid is coming through in that way as well, where these, these bags, gridded bags that you get, mesh bags that you get um, fruit and veg in um, are becoming the things that I'm stitching through and using the material of my grandmother's uh, and, you know, and so on. I'm also working with curtains and specifically the material behind a curtain that kind of creates that um, double layer effect to block light and heat. And the back layer of the curtain also has this grid. So the grid kind of intuitively just came into my performance practice now. And now I need to work the grid into a conceptual thing that makes sense in this body of work. And the way that it makes sense to me now is, like I said, it's like a political tool. Yeah. The grid is a political tool. Yeah. I think that's fascinating. Um, <laughs> and specific, like especially the connection with the grid and land is also something that 
fascinates me at the moment. But um, yeah, while you were speaking now about the grid becoming political, I started thinking, well, in many ways, the grid was always political, mm -hmm. uh, even in your earlier work, even the maybe even the impulse to to create that divide between, as you said, like the, the more like structure and intuition and all of those things, um, those, the, the way those concepts have been divided in the past has, has also, I guess, been part of a larger political project. I know I'm being a little bit vague now, but I do think there's yeah. something um, inherently political about the grid and um, and maybe that's just what you are now going to start exposing. And I really like that quote that you read, uh, you know, about how the grid is kind of everywhere. Um, yeah. But I think and and how it's beautiful. But but I think it's it isn't innocent in that sense. The grid. No. And and what's coming up for me now is how fascinating it is that the things that we connect to the grid, even in the article like sidewalks and and skyscrapers those are all man-made elements aspects of of the world we live in yet we are extremely organic beings we are not like symmetrical perfectly like fit into gridded boxes but we've created this structure of thinking that almost tries to categorize the whole world into boxes perfect boxes so this idea that what we create as man is is more structured than the kind of origins that we come from and if you think of like the way that um during apartheid race were you know kind of categorized and how you had to fill in a box or color a box of of what race you are and um uh, yeah it's just interesting that that we don't fit into the box but we have this fascination with the grid and even the political project of of thinking about science, you know, like my first in intuition to go towards the grid as a science project, you know, and how, what there is to say about science being such a systematic structured field, and yet there's a lot that we don't know. So it kind of leaves everything out outside of that, which is also making me think of how art is, uh, Brené Brown has in a book, this quote where, and it was one of her artist friends that said, long ago people categorized the work into all these the world into all these neat boxes and art is the box behind the couch that everything that doesn't fit into the neat boxes gets chucked <laughs> into the box of art and it's overflown and it doesn't make sense by the so much to the point that it's not even fitting in the box anymore it's just like outside of the box you can't even see the box anymore it's just this pile behind the couch and and it's interesting that my approach um in life through art is also kind of gravitated towards using the grid uh, where my work is also very chaotic and unstructured and organic and intuitive but the grid is kind of the only like little bit of structure that I'm holding on to I feel like I'm like this grid I can't let go of it and and then it like kind of disappears into my work and then it creeps its way back so it's like it also it also helps me to make sense of of this like artistic mess that's going on in my head constantly yeah. I it's actually um, so serendipitous that we are both uh, like the things that we randomly decided to air out today actually link a lot together. I'm realizing now. Yeah. 
And I, I want you to, I want you to actually transition into that because well, I'm looking at the time. That was my yeah. little transitioning. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> because exactly what you just said before um, links links very well to what I'm going to try to say. So basically, <laughs> what I want to air out today is. Um, I've been, um, the part of my PhD that I'm busy with now, and I guess more broadly as well, it's, it's within the field of feminist geography. And I was sitting like writing the introduction the other day, and then I was thinking like, I need to do a bit of explaining in terms of how the hell did I end up with geography and feminist geography, and I'm busy doing philosophy. Um, so I started thinking like, you know, like, why is geography um, of philosophical concern? You know, why does why does it matter philosophically? And um, I also have thought about my own associations with geography because I also, like, kind of thought, like, the first thing that comes to mind to me is maps, like, just seeing maps, seeing the um, kind of coordinate system, which is very gridded. <laughs> um, yeah memorizing like capital cities <laughs> uh, capitals of places and like kind of that kind of yeah the whole map part of geography and our globe and and then like I also recall in in school like being very bored with like the whole like study of weather and all of those other like physical geography type of phenomena but then I realized that like geography is split into two and there's natural or physical geography and then there's human geography and um, there's a lot about human geography that's like fascinating to me even just from a very superficial perspective of traveling and seeing places and people and basically the the link between people and their environments I mean what's not fascinating about that that's like kind of an overarching thing about ourselves um, and then I also realized that philosophy the type of things geographers, um, human geographers look into like um, space and time and place and the human, this whole idea of the human in place is literally what like most of the philosophical theories that I'm busy with are also doing, like the field of phenomenology, which is like the, 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 the study of experience and is very much like situated in place or um, ontology, which is like the study of how we perceive reality um, and also epistemology, which is, this is like all the big words, but I need to say it and explain it before. Yeah, I fascinating. It also reminds me. <laughs> yeah, uh, crash course quickly of like the study of knowledge. So how, how do we know about the things of the world? And that course also links a bit of to, to your in inquiry of um, memory and like how you trust your own senses or your the knowledge that you have about the world um, and how it's mediated through other things. Um, so there's, and then also it's political, political philosophy, part of like, as you said, the project of colonialism, the project of apartheid um, as a, like a space-time phenomena is political. Um, the sidewalk, for instance, even if we put that on a grid in the city is so political, like who gets to walk where all these protests that happen on the streets in the city centers uh, 
to like if you think about slut walks like that very act of like walking on the street because to, to to protest against the fact that certain people can't walk on the streets at certain times of night or in general um so i realized like okay actually i i can start forming a relationship with geography now because it, it fits into uh what interests me anyway um and then I started, so the theorist that I'm working with, the one uh, is called Catherine McKittrick, and she's a Canadian, um, I call her a philosopher, but she's, she calls herself more of a, just a writer in general, and a, a gender, gender studies professor, but um, her work is so interdisciplinary that like any, anything I would say to summarize her would, won't do her justice. <laughs> um, and I, I started reading her book, uh, which is called Demonic Grounds. Um, wait, mm -hmm. now I need to make sure. And then it's like the, the subheading has to do with the cartographies of struggle. So that idea about the map and the coordinate system and the cartographer, uh, but then to, to map, basically to map out uh, the struggles uh, in place, basically. And um, she actually also, her most recent book is called uh, Dear Science. And it's like a love letter that she wrote to science, but from a more like humanities perspective. And it also features a lot of uh, what you spoke about in the grid between your artistic factors and this idea of this kind of scientific idea, like method. So her, a, a big part of her work is about methodology and critically thinking and rethinking about the ways in which methodology is um, conceived of in certain disciplines, like especially even philosophy that is sometimes very anxious about its own methodologies and disciplinary boundaries. Uh, you know, what counts as real philosophy and what is fake philosophy and what is, and oftentimes like feminist philosophy is like seen as not real philosophy, which is interesting, but not surprising. Um, so um, anyway, I started reading her books and I was my initial thought of my thesis was that it's just going to focus on her work and I'm going to bring that into conversation with like urban space in South Africa. And then I realized that like a figure that like part of her intellectual um, icons and inspirations uh, was this other philosopher called Sylvia Winter. And she's a Jamaican, um, she was born in Cuba and then moved to Jamaica when she was like two years old. She was born in 1928. So she's, I think, 94 years old today. Wow. Um, and today? The, not today is not her birthday. Oh. <laughs> like in current time, she's... She's um, she's still alive, but I mean, she's basically like produced her corporate, like her body of work already. Like she's probably still doing stuff. But I mean, it's not. <laughs> uh, she's just a, a figure that has such a large body of work that now she's receiving uh, so much scholarly attention. And um, I was just kind of so overwhelmed by this, this, these. Um, theorists that are all kind of black American North American slash Caribbean thinkers 
and the way they are doing philosophy that is so different from what I learned in, in university, even though they interlap and engage with all the philosophers and thinkers that I did learn about, I feel like their piece of the puzzle wasn't explained. Um, and that's just why it's now so inspiring. So anyway, that's a kind of a long introduction to where I'm at now. But fascinating. Um, it's necessary. Yeah. So um so I thought even though I have a lot to say about Catherine McKittrick, I almost want to talk about Sylvia Winter's ideas because it's really challenging me. Like, okay. firstly, she has like so much that she wrote and she was also a playwright. She has a novel. She wanted to be a dancer and like also danced in plays and um, sings. And she's just like the epitome of a interdisciplinary person there isn't for her she studied like um spanish and languages and um uh you know literary theory and so she's not necessarily she she's thought of as a philosopher as well but she's like there's just so much that she did within her life in terms of her outputs um but the like underlying question that she engages with which I said in the beginning it's like kind of a big question is like uh what it means to be human and um she traces this back to I think earlier you also said something about how man how we impose this uh these boxes on ourselves as as mankind and um basically she also her whole approach is to uh, she has also this conceptualization, conceptualization of man uh, and as part of the human, but she is, is criticizing it from a kind of black studies perspective. Um, and it's, it's basically situated in, um, so it, it, there's another philosopher which I've spoken about on the podcast before, Foucault, Michel Foucault, I think, he might he's also very like prominent in visual studies things but he has this thing about providing a genealogy so looking back at the history in order to understand power relationships today and um he also did so part of what i called earlier the theory of epistemology how we know things uh the theory of knowledge is part of what what he was trying to say is that there's certain what he calls epistemes so like periods periods of knowledge that almost like what we've spoken about before of like a little paradigm of of knowledge that's that's specific to a period but when you take a genio 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 I can't say the word now but when you when you take a perspective of looking back through history you can see traces of certain concepts developing not necessarily chronologically but it's like a good method to try and understand the origins of power. So he looked, for instance, at the history of sexuality, or uh, we spoke about discipline and punishment and crime and all of that, how by looking at that history, you can understand something today. And Sylvia Winter does something similar, um, although she um, criticizes Foucault a little bit in her work. Um, but um, so she, like, basically, the, the first thing to acknowledge is that when Europe and the West, and especially Western philosophers, started um, 
the project of humanism, which is the philosophical field that is about humans and man as the individual. So if you think about historically when before the Renaissance and everything, everything was just about God, you know, if you go from Greek times, it was always an external force. And now then for the first time, it was all situated in, in man itself. Man was like the ultimate being that you could rely you say, on. If you say man, you use that term because that's how they spoke about it back yeah. then, but yeah. person, yeah. right? Yeah, so I'm going to criticize the man part now, soon. But okay. that's, cool. that's how they um, saw it, you know? And a lot of people still continue to refer to man's when they talk about human which obviously I'm something I'm I don't enjoy but um anyway so they what was important is that yeah they referred to it and that time as man and um I think I see we are gonna run out of time again maybe we should just quickly start and rejoin yeah, now. Hmm? okay cool let's do that Yes. Um, so basically, in short, um, there was no external man anymore at that time. It was just, but what happened in, in Europe, what Sylvia Winter and other scholars point out is that basically when, when Europe and the Western world discovered themselves, <laughs> if I can say it like that, like without God, um, they also discovered their others. Um, so the whole conceptualization of the self was already in that time correlated historically with when um, with when others were discovered. So before um, um, what's his name Copernicus had this understanding of you know the you know the Earth isn't just bounded. Um, it's like you can actually move past a certain point. Uh, it's actually around and um, when um, when people started realizing, oh, we can actually explore beyond where we are at the moment, uh, before then, the, the very idea of what it means to be a man or a woman or a person was linked to what it means to be a Western white man, woman or person. Like, just quickly imagine how earth shattering it must be in that moment to discover there's, there's more, there's, there's different people. But obviously that story, that kind of origin story of who the human is came with a very like troubling um, past where at that time when, when what is called explorers in, in quotation marks went to, uh, for instance, the Americas or um, you know, Africa, the in, India, the what they thought was going to be India, they couldn't classify when seeing black people, indigenous people, they couldn't classify them as humans. They were classified as a different set of others, which was almost more relegated to the difference between humans, rational humans and animals. And um, that's why even the, even the language used to describe, for instance, an indigenous black woman but and an indigenous um, black man or was wasn't black woman it was like negro or negra like they in in the language it wasn't seen on the same scale of what it means to be human so from the from that beginning past 
past the Renaissance all the way. She, so she calls that phase of history kind of the conceptualization of man one. This is like the first epistemic little shift that happens when the way you, you they knew the world changed and it also changed the, the way in which they um, started knowing others. But this was, and this was all part of a geographic phenomenon, you know, moving to a different place. And she sees that, or Sylvia Winter describes that happening again with Charles Darwin's revolution of in breakthrough in understanding evolution, where all of a sudden now uh, humans are seen as um, similar to animals, uh, you know, biologically. And then that whole argument of like, oh, they are the animal others couldn't happen anymore. So the way in which others were described were now all of a sudden they had to somehow reconcile them in some way of being human, even though uh, they were still, you know, thought of as lesser. So um, that's kind of a long historic rant, but what's interesting for me about Sylvia Winter's work is she, she takes, really goes into detail and I'm like, it's challenging to read and make sense of what she's saying. So it's hundred percent possible that I'm like explaining this wrong. Just want to say that. Um, <laughs> But she does that in order to then um, come to a place to say, how can we actually imagine uh, if, if we want to, like she, her project is to say, we need a renewed understanding of what it means to be human because the current conceptualization is connected with this history um, of humanness that bas basically ignored and, and discredited and negated black Black people, um, people, you know, from indigenous populations, all of that, and that um, that is crucial for us to to really have a, a sense of humanity today. So, um, yeah, that and the, the thing that makes that radical to me is how how tied up it is with geography and with placemaking. Um, so even just that act of mapping and the stories that are being chosen to highlight through that, you know, when you, um, what I said I did, I was guilty of earlier, just like reducing places to what you see on a map and how you navigate them. What, um, what both Catherine McKittrick and Sylvia Winter is trying to say is that there's actually all these geographic stories that are not on the map, but that are crucial in how we conceptualize uh, place and space. And, um, and therefore their project turns to these black thinkers um, to show what has always been there already, uh, but that, that has been dismissed. And um, that is why, I'm now like entering or reading into this whole new world of scholars um, that that yeah that just um, frame place in such a different way than what I'm used to. So that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, I feel like there's so much more to say, but I'm like it tempts me to go read stuff that I know is not a good idea because then it'll just go on for so long so maybe do you have a question Nicolene? I wanted to know if talking through it helped you 
find more clarity with it because you said you started off saying that the reason you want to air this is because it's challenging stuff because it's so new and different and do you feel like the process of airing it shed light on this and maybe in what what areas did it shed light like what areas do you now realize you need to maybe go read more on or how you can connect it to your larger project of your PhD? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I feel like, yeah, I'm not a like history student and some of these like historic dates and happenings like from the Renaissance to Darwin and all of that, um, kind of just painting that historic picture for myself was helpful. Um, mm -hmm. And now I am left thinking, you know, how, how does this relate back to what I'm doing and to, um, you know, like, how is this relevant uh, mm. for us today still? Um, and if you had to, if you had to quickly say intuitively right now off the whim, why is it relevant and why is it important for a South African person to consider this as a topic that needs to be included in their PhD? <laughs> well, I think um, on a yeah on an intuitive level, I think some of it might sound very obvious. Like it, it, I know about colonialism, I know about apartheid, I know that there's politics to spaces and placemaking, but at the same time, um, it's also something that in my everyday life I don't, you know. You know it, but it it also goes past. I realized that it 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 um, almost went over my head to what extent um, mm. all of this is at play in our everyday understandings of place. Um, yeah, because of my, I guess, privilege as a white woman, and that's also something that I struggle with. Is like drawing on all these black scholars and their body of work uh, as a white person there's also a politics to that of like not only um kind of using it for my own um you know it's easy to just be like okay I have all this privilege I'm gonna just quickly like use what these people say about it and then kind of almost um uh what's the word tokenize um mm what is being said or reduced. So I think what I'm, I'm really like kind of confronted with the responsibility of very carefully reading and looking into what is being said theoretically in a way that I've been a bit more careless with before. Like before it, it's like, okay, this philosopher says this, bring it in. Uh, but now I'm seeing like there's so much, there's even a power play at stake with the way in which certain people are being read and used and brought into in academia, like having almost like a token Fanon quote or token this and just like kind of name dropping it, but not really doing justice to. Um, so there's almost like a methodological thing about it. And the other thing is because of the interdisciplinary way in which these theorists write it's also really made me question on an like as an on a more academic level um what why like uh why we are often so hesitant to go beyond our disciplinary boundaries 
and only you know this is now the canon it's the same with art like this is the people you should study and this is the order in which you should study it in and only luckily on yeah yeah I feel like luckily in the field of art especially with a subject like visual studies we kind of broke through all of that because they purposefully made this instead of art history made it like a it's a cultural studies that is yeah. interpreted through the lens of art but I find it fascinating that you are through reading these scholars rethinking the methodology and the approach to writing because you are kind of doing a, a interdisciplinary and PhD at the moment and even in your process of trying to get that approved there was a lot of hesitance from the the philosophical department but not necessarily so much from the artistic department or you know like so there's this the, the grid is evident in in the methodology methodological approach as well you know like yeah. how we categorize and where we're allowed to speak about certain things and yeah. and what language to use it and, and what's fascinating to me about what you said now is that the entire project of thinking about decolonization and thinking about post-apartheid theory and writings and everything if you look at what you've discovered now through these theorists in terms of how place was understood and how the understanding of what it means to be human was created you have to bring a whole nother level of consciousness into that because the way that we are used to speak about these topics that are supposed to be decolonizing topics also includes language potentially that has not been critically um like, you know like where the sources where they come from and how the the words are structured into the understanding of the theory and things like that like we haven't i did never considered adversity like even zooming out even further like where you are now and like considering just the origins of of the understanding of place and being human and how that's like seeped into our entire academic system and understanding of of what it means to be human now you know now that we're considering decolonizing the yeah. world <laughs> yeah and that's where it's like the connection between um because i've always thought of myself like in terms of philosophical interests I've always been interested in more in terms of ontology, phenomenology. How do I experience the world? What does it mean to be embodied, situated in the world? And how is all of that political? Mm-hmm. But what I'm now realizing is that I'm also, a, another layer on that is to say, but that, that part cannot be isolated from how we think about what we know. And it's so, yeah. it's kind of obvious that it's entrenched, but like to, to actually go into those connections are very powerful um especially and a mindfuck and a bit of a mindfuck and and it's a powerful disruption so mm-hmm. um i think that's also a part of it um but the part that's very exciting is how um i think like interdisciplinary work and that's also a term that's kind of like a buzzword like everyone's saying like oh it's interdisciplinary um but to really go into like what does it mean to be be radically interdisciplinary um to the point where the disciplines don't make sense anymore and no, i feel like sorry just to interject but but no. this is where we are with gender abolition and you know like the the lines are being blurred so much so that why do we even have the lines anymore why yeah, do we so have the grid yeah it's questioning why 
yeah, why these categorize, categorizations were put in place in the first place. And it's kind of disrupting the perceived sanctity of it. So yes. to say that actually there's something politically also, there's something to be to criticize about the very nature of disciplinary thinking, which is a radical claim if you think about just how university is structured, how you study a certain field, you specialize in a certain field, even in the humanities, which is so much more, as you said, like interlinked already. Because I'm I read visual studies people and I read these like literary scholars and they all use philosophers sometimes more so than that I, than what I like I learn about philosophers through them rather than in philosophy itself so um that is kind of a bit of a mindfuck to to see kind of how fragile those lines are in the first place um but then the the, the fun hopeful part is how by crossing those disciplinary boundaries and challenging yourself to read outside of what is put forth by the canon, there's like a new type of imagination and a new type of thinking that emerges or that have already emerged that um, can be applied. That's very exciting. Like it feels very radical in that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I like, don't really just have any. <laughs> No, just like I wanted to say, no, I don't really have any further questions, but um, I felt like it was a really good airing, you know, like of yeah. understanding what it is that you're thinking on right now. So if yeah. there is anything, I know you want to add something now, you want to add, um, maybe like yeah. a conclusionary. Yeah, yeah, I think we can definitely wrap it up. But what I um, just wanted to say, like an example of what I mean by this, like, um, what could be in like, for instance, an alternative geography is like um, Catherine McKittrick looks at um, the plantation and especially in the like context of slavery, but where would she would literally set, look at the place between a woman's leg as a geographic location and how politically charged that is already. And that's something you can also relate to the apartheid um, Time. So you mean the vagina? The vagina, but also even more, it can be read more abstractly than that. So to say, you know, the, the way in which people have written about women and what they do and reproduction and all of those themes, but even how it's entrenched with a whole other layer in, in the context of slavery. Um, or like if someone was like, you know, hiding up in an attic or a garrow and not being able to really see like, these type of places that black women were forced to inhabit uh, that are not necessarily, you know, ge geographic locations that you would consider in the sense of like, this is urban space, this is suburban space, this is, yeah. it's a different uh, kind of place. Um, but to say, what can we learn even in troubled histories that's connected to what can they say about uh, place in general in ways that um, traditional notions of place can't so really like tapping into those different places that's just like one example of like to illustrate what I mean because I feel like it can sound very abstract um, but yeah to yeah, wrap because up, you also yeah. mentioned sorry yeah. I just want to add on that the other day we had a conversation you mentioned like you know like this the slavers block you know like the block where the auction block you know so yeah. to almost then understand that they are different maps of experience. So 
the plantation to the attic to the orchard block to the place between a woman's legs you know creates a new kind of map a new kind of experience of the world basically and a whole new narrative um, is that what you're, you're yeah, saying yeah so if like for instance the ocean block is it's where almost capitalism and com the commodifying of black women's bodies took place it's the location yeah. it's one of the first or not first but uh primary locations of that um but then what mckittrick yeah. so beautifully does and it's so poetic and uh profound is like she she takes that and then she just takes it to a whole other level of also seeing something kind of emancipatory within it um and i think it, it's a good challenge to think in our south african context as white women and we've spoken about the idea of the enclave before and like the places we are in like to to look at those places like we brainstormed together the other day like what's happening on your community whatsapp group what's happening in an uber what's happening as a, as a geographical space that has a completely different narrative yeah, from the rest of the world yeah, yeah and to challenge yourself to think what does it mean to inhabit those places uh what disruptions are possible what geographic stories about what it means to be human are told in those spaces like the whatsapp group is a good of like security yeah because i told you that in on my whatsapp group in the neighborhood there's this constant policing happening of people just working through the street and it's a, it's really really frustrating to me how there's just this whole other understanding of what people mean in different spaces and so these people in their big houses are sitting um, behind bars taking pictures of people in the street and posting it on the group and having an entire narrative around someone walking through the street and that like when you then pointed out you know let's think about these like alternative spaces spaces we don't necessarily consider as geographical spaces where you know this kind of um, racism is still taking place the whatsapp group is one of those you know mm. and then it becomes a entirely different way of thinking of like what is my role as someone that has access into that enclave um, to be able to you know disrupt it and create a new yeah. narrative hopefully yeah yeah because it still reinforces that colonial thing that i spoke about of like the south and the other yeah. it's it's yeah. still re reinforced in our contemporary places it's and i mean it's not only an alternative it's also very obvious in like the grid of like the city and the history of spatial yeah. like forced removals and all of that so it's not even that you have to go look very like finally it's it's also in the obvious places but i think it's interesting to go explore those alternative spaces um yeah so yeah that is um uh <laughs> i guess we are trying to conclude now but there is so much to say on this topic um and yeah, uh, yeah it was good to just air it out as with all air it conversations it's never a definitive or um you know something that we are like this is what we prepared this is where it starts this is where it ends it's just us airing out on ideas and hopefully it just prompts like you probably have so much to add uh, I'm talking now to listeners like at your home you like a friend recently also told us like I feel like I just want to chip in and add to what you're saying um and that's exactly what should happen because we are not like whole, we are really not like in any sense authoritative in this space of what you're saying. We're just airing rough ideas and hoping it can develop further. Yeah, absolutely. I see the internet is a little bit unstable on my side, so I don't know if you can hear me. Can, can. you? I can. Okay. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I suppose, I mean, it's still a very privileged space to to access, but Instagram is the platform where we kind of encourage that adding to, you know, if you have something to say, comment it on um, the episodes that we release, the, the material that we put out, because then it also creates this kind of uh, closed but public forum where people can you know engage and and add and we'd love to see that and if you have questions because I felt like I didn't ask you any questions now Jana but if there's more like critical questions you want to ask us to help us in this airing out because it is also a very selfish project of becoming better at speaking about our work and um, you're relating it to the public then then please ask those as well and maybe we can end off the way we always end off. <laughs> and remember, stay okay. simulated. Okay, bye. Bye bye, Anna. Bye. Irid is a team effort. It is produced by Nicolene Berger and Jana Fosler. Morgan Loebscher contributes visually by creating beautiful artworks and social media content. Tabu Krokom produced the intro and outro music and reach out to us if you have an idea of how Erit can expand. And remember, stay stimulated. stimulated. <laughs>